0: You are listening to Black
1: Reality Think Tank with host Dr. William Rogers on Time for an Awakening Media,
0: part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com.
1: yah hey yah
2: History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells a people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people For they still must go what they still must be the relationship of history to the people
0: Finley Medical Clinic. We
2: serve uninsured, underinsured, and insured individuals. Open Monday through Thursday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Urgent Care Clinic Friday and Saturday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Call for an appointment at 414- 988-3079 Finley Medical Clinic is accepting new patients. Vaccines and screenings for uninsured, underinsured, and insured. Located at 10721 West Capitol Drive, Suite 110. Call our office for an appointment today. At 4. You
1: are listening to Black Reality Think Tank with host Dr. William Rogers on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up
3: at timeforanawakening at gmail.com.
0: Ho-Tep and greetings my sisters and brothers. Welcome to the Black Reality Think Tank. My name is Dr. William Rogers and I am your host for the evening. So happy that you could join us here this evening. We are here for another dynamic conversation uh, to talk with you about life in the African world. And so we have a subject that's very important for all of us, and that is the story of the black church in America. And <clears throat> So I appreciate you do coming on. We are here every Tuesday evening, as you know. Um, we are broadcasting here on the com radio platform, and uh, we are broadcasting all over the world. We are internet radio, and there are people that reach us in the very far corners of the world, and we really appreciate the opportunity to be a part of this, this platform. <clears throat> this is a call-in platform if you would like to join our discussion later on into the program, you can do so by calling area code 215-490-9832. And I repeat, 215-490-9832. And you can join our conversation and give us your tips or ask questions, however you so choose to do so. And we welcome you to do that as well. Uh, Tonight, we're going to be talking about one of the most critical institutions uh, in the African world. And that is the institutions, uh, religious, spiritual institutions, and we are going to take a look with a sort of a, some depth to that. Uh, we hear a lot of discussion uh, going back and forward about the history and the process and the the role and uh, of the Black Church, and so we want to kind of deal with that a little bit. This is a, a think tank format. And we are here to come together from your various perspectives, that people see life, uh, various professions that work with life, and add the contribution to that to sort of bring clarity, and then hopefully use that. Some of us can use that uh, to bring to our platforms uh, and begin to provide solutions for our people. Uh, But we have to come together first, look, see how it can be done, and uh, add each other together and and go forward. The uh, black church, in the very beginning of our sojourn here in America, uh, has been one of the most critical institutions that there is. It is the cornerstone of African-American life and culture. And after slavery, there was a number of black political leaders uh, who doubled as ministers of the gospel. The black church very clearly no argument is a critical institution for African Americans. It became the first institution in the United States where we control solely by ourselves. And uh, it was a very dynamic dynamic and uh, positive institution. I'm going to uh, start by asking our audience, if you could please, uh, as you come on, mute your telephones, uh, because all of the background noise can be picked up into the system, and uh, as you know, this is a uh, broadcast uh, throughout the world, and we can pick up the sound uh, wherever, and as of a, as a right now, I, I am hearing a lot of noise, so for those of you who are on the telephone right now, please mute your telephone, please, Dom 911 919 please mute your telephone. 919-224. Please mute your telephone. Okay. All right. And with that, uh, we can uh, move forward. We, we we As we get to, you know, our discussion hour, we can open the lines and definitely uh, have you come back. But right now, we did need to mute that because the background noise uh, definitely will interrupt what we're doing. So tonight we are going to, this is our format for tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about this role that the black church has, and here's why. The reason that we're going to do that is that there are many people today who are saying that uh, the black church is absent, is silent. Uh, It has gone through some very difficult times, like we all have. Uh, The COVID-19, the virus that has kind of shut down America in some areas, it has definitely uh, held us back from doing some of the things that we would normally do, and so it has, the black church has fallen victim to that, just like businesses and schools and other areas have fallen, but thing is, is it it is the the most crucial institution that we have. We cannot let it uh, fall. We cannot let it die. We cannot let it go behind. We must grab it. And then the other thing is that there is much controversy about the black church's uh, theology and its philosophy uh, in terms of dealing with people. Uh, There are many people who have said that uh, the black church uh, has basically uh, engraced, embraced the white man's religion and in doing so uh, we have lost the focus of what we need to do. Um, there are questions about that and what that really means and if, what is the possibility that that has happened and so we are here to kind of look at a little bit. Now obviously <laughs> we have only two hours to do here and so there's only a limited amount of time that we can use and explore this, but we can begin the conversation. Uh, this is an ongoing conversation. This is not a one-timer. And we will not come up with solutions necessarily, but as I said, this is a think tank. And we sit, get together and we think about the issues and think about whether the black church is dead or if it has died, how do you resurrect it? Uh, we think about what its role has been. We, we have to think about and sort of implement ideas and change is to support it because uh, there has been, I would argue, no institution uh, that has been more devastated than the system of chattel slavery. And the black church flourished in many ways during those years. During the years of chattel slavery, during the years of uh, segregation, Jim Crowism, uh, the black church flourished. It was at the forefront of the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, It took the greatest hits uh, of any of the institutions that we've had. And if it can survive that, uh, it can continue to still move forward. So tonight we are going to uh, uh, talk a little bit about that. In the beginning, I am going to uh, just kind of discuss a little bit with you, provide you with some information on some of the things that have been written historically about the black church, some things that will kind of clear and give us an understanding of how it has operated and what it did do uh, to survive in those times, uh, what its role was doing some of those critical points that we're talking about, uh, slavery, Jim Crow, um, Reconstruction, civil rights, how did it survive that? Uh, How did its leadership uh, begin to embrace that? And I'm going to do that by simply just sharing with you some resources uh, that were written by contemporaries of the time, by those who went back and researched diligently, some of our great minds who went back and looked at the black church and and explored it from a historical and sociological, philosophical uh, position. So we want to take a look. Take a look at that. So you might want to, if you like, you know, we we often hear that Black New York like to think Change provide a lot of resources, and that's that's what we want to make sure we continue to do. So you might want to get your little pencil and paper and be able to take down some notes about uh, uh, some of the resources that I'm going to share with you, and probably at your leisure, uh, maybe put your hands on these resources and read them and take a look at them, and they'll provide you with some in-depth understanding of that. My background is a historian. Uh, I also taught at a seminary where I taught a course called The History of the Black Church, uh, and it was done from a spiritual possession. And then during my years at the University of Wisconsin, I taught a course uh, called The Church in African American Society. And that uh, gave me an opportunity to look at a lot of resources and to have my students look at a lot of resources to sort of better understand, you know, what was said and what it is that the church didn't go through and what its role was and what it actually did, what was its results. And, and so I'm going to give you a shadow of that tonight. As I said, I don't want to do too much. And then I've asked some members of our clergy and those who are in training of the clergy to join me and to provide some information uh, in terms of uh, what they know, what they see, what they've said. And some of you who are a part of the black church structure in some way maybe, and you can share with us some of the inside information that we must have, couple that with the historical factors, and see what we can come up with to sort of, if it is dead, resurrect it. And so as you know, I, I the title of today's program, was borrowed from a biblical quote where uh, Jesus is calling Lazarus from the tomb. And he said to Lazarus, come out and take out your grave clothes. And so today we are saying in our topic to the black church, come out and take off your grave clothes. And we are going to explore that uh, and look at those things of how that is possible. So, as I've said, indicated, um, I am going to provide you with just a, a survey of some of the material out there that will help us understand a little bit of what has been said uh, and understand the black church institution. And so, I'm going to ask all of you who are out there listening and in preparation as you come on the line to please mute your phone. <laughs>
1: could
0: you. Okay. Um, so we, we want to get on into our discussion. And again, I just simply say to our audience, please mute your telephone. Now, um, one of the um, works that I am going to borrow some notes from and and some of their research is, uh, is in some research that was done by a historian by the name of David Jackson, Jr., and he wrote a lot about uh, the black church and its significance and its role, so we want to borrow some of his thoughts and notes and and others in mind. The, the uh, historian, who, whose name is Dar- Darlene Clark Hine, uh, and her husband William Hine, um, did point out in one of their writings that the black church has provided for not only the spiritual needs of the masses, but also their social, political, and cultural needs. Uh, The independent black church emerged in the antebellum period and their growth accelerated after the end of the war, meaning the Civil War. So the desire to establish these churches really resulted from African people who were tired of being treated as second-class citizens uh, and second-class Christians in white churches. For example, uh, a lot of the black parishioners attending white churches typically had to sit together in the rear corner of the church, or either in a balcony, or in some cases they had to sit outside uh, and listen in the window. So, in fact, the earliest examples, if we go back and we really look at some of the, the history, the earliest examples of organized segregation began with African Americans uh, in the United States that were found in the churches. White people did not want black people worshiping with them. And at this point, as it got into the more into the 19th century, uh, black people were in need of spiritual revitalment and they were looking for ways to express their spirituality uh, in that hostile environment known as chattel slavery. Most black people did not have the opportunity to serve, like, for instance, in leadership positions uh, in the white church, things like, you know, the deacons, the trustees, singing the choir, uh, stewards or students They couldn't do that. So this type of discrimination that they were facing in these white churches inspired many Blacks to create an alternative. And although the white churches served the spiritual needs of their white members and provided them with that theological support for their racist political and social beliefs, because you have to remember, a lot of the terrorism, of racism, came out of operating in the white church and white religion and Christianity. Uh, African Americans often deemed the white churches message as irrelevant. And we know that from history. There were a lot of historians that went back and they looked at what black people thought and how they thought. One of these was uh, the great Carnegie Woodson. Woodson wrote a book called The Mind of the Negro. And that book was uh, based on letters, letters that he had uh, uh, compiled of written between, back and forward, between the African-Americans. And in those letters, they were writing to their friends and families and neighbors, and they were telling them what they thought and felt. And so in a sense, he could get an idea that uh, they were not buying into that. They were not buying into the philosophy of the white church, white Christianity, that they were looking for a way to express their own system. And so, uh, the, the, they created, so at that point, they created a variety of churches for themselves. Uh, and indeed, a, a lot of them uh, were, were churches with all kinds of different messages and understandings. There was one writer, his name is Willett Gatewood. He wrote a book called Aristocrats of Color, The Black Elite and he looked at the period between 1880 and 1920, and he wrote the book in 1990. And he said the more prosperous members of the African-American community, this is post-slavery, were who they called the black elite. And this group tended to join the Presbyterian, uh, tended to be a part of the Catholics, the Methodists, the Episcopalian, Congregational and Episcopal churches. So these were some of those uh, high-ranking denominations that they were participating in. And so he said that African Americans who were free before the Civil War usually affiliated with these elite congregations. Someone is definitely not going to let us do this because they have not muted their telephone. And I am praying that they will, okay, and it really does, I really appreciate it if you would do that. And I know it could be annoying to you, keep me I keep asking you that, but you, you really can't hear, and it does disrupt you from doing that. The system that we have uh, is an open board for the telephone. Now, we can do it with the Internet. We can block the car with the Internet, but not with the telephone. So you come on and use free. Whatever you do when you come on, we hear it. Whatever you say, we can hear it. And so that's why I have to keep uh, interrupting. Okay. um, So the the point that I guess that I'm making is that you have to uh, take in consideration that these elite groups, these were elite groups uh, that had gone in and joined to. Now, a lot of history of that uh, has to do sometimes with uh, other other issues and uh, has to do with the way the plantation was structured. Uh, a lot of plantations uh, had mulattoes. These were the people that uh, were were children uh, of the uh, of the plantation owner. And uh, these uh, individuals sometimes would pull together, uh, and they would go to these different. And the if the, if the owner of the plantation uh, was a part of that. Uh, church, then they would also do it as well. And as you remember, one of the things that we found about a lot of that is that, uh, you know, the the plantation owner would provide access, you know, and a lot of the buildings to to have the churches in were provided by the owner. So, but anyway, these elite kind of churches would set up their own system. They would operate them in ways uh, very similar uh, to the way the owner did it, and, uh, and, and they had, like I said, that elite, elite tone. Their worship service was usually a little quiet, uh, easy going, uh, and it did not take on, uh, you know, some of the more aggressive forms of worship and expression. And so uh, this kind of situation, this kind of situation uh, definitely created uh, this division and this division also ended up affecting over into the plantation, which is one of the reasons why today we may be in conflict sometimes about religious groups and people that attend church and people that go to certain kinds of churches. Uh, this may have a lot to do with it. And so the historians indicated that these were started, uh, you know, in a way to help fund, you know, those, uh, those a lot of it had to do with the funding. And that's how it began to pick up. In the South, there was a lot of Presbyterian churches throughout the South. Uh, it was very interesting. The Presbyterians were uh, were a lot different than, say, the Baptists or any form of Pentecostalism. But uh, they were very, very, very strong. So anyway, in this book that Gatewood wrote, Aristocrats of Color, the Black Elite, he goes in and explains that because that has a lot to do with the division that we will begin to see later as you move into the 20th century. Um, so the African Americans who were free before the Civil War, uh, as I said, they usually ended up going to that type of church. Now, there's another book that was written by uh, David Jackson. So I'm, Like I said, I'm going to give you a lot of books, so you might want to do that because this discussion is really gives you the idea. We have to provide you with the information of what was happening. And, and in order to do that, you've got to give you what research and work was already done. That's the only way we would know this information is we have to look at the future. I mean, I'm, pa- I'm sorry, past research of, uh, of our scholars. And we've had some great minds who have explored the history of the black church. So there's another book by David Jackson. It's called A Chief Lieutenant of the Tuskegee Machine. His name was Charles Banks, and he was from Mississippi. Now... Um, That particular uh, book and that particular story uh, has a lot to do with the the building of Tuskegee. In a couple of weeks we're going to be focusing on Tuskegee and looking at the Tuskegee machine and what was it that made it so unique. We're going to even have the mayor, one of the former mayors of Tuskegee as a guest, and we're going to talk about the Tuskegee machine and how all of that uh, came to power. But nevertheless, um, this book uh, dealt with a lot of the Jim Crow era, and it has shown in some cases that the particular church that attended meant more than the denomination. So a lot of times, the church that you went to made more of a difference than it did the denomination. The Baptist Church, for instance, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the African Methodist Episcopal Zion, uh, the CME. And the others all had elite churches and members. There was one church called Green Grove Baptist Church in Bethel, AME, uh, and they were all a part of an all black town called Mound Bayou, Mississippi. And these were churches attended by the elite at the turn of the 20th century. These were business owners, uh, these were teachers, these were doctors at the time. Again, this is post slavery. So, service among the elite tended to be more formal and solemn, uh, as the author illustrated. And it would be the type that Booker T. Washington would go to. Booker T. Washington would go to one type of church, and probably his students and the people that worked at Tuskegee uh, went to another. They said they used to tell, they had a joke that Booker T. Washington used to use. Uh, He used to tell a story about an older black woman in Mississippi. Who went into an episcopal episcopal church and she took a seat in the rear. And during the service, the lady started clapping her hands and moaning. So an usher went over to see if she was sick. And he said, She said, No, sir, uh, I was happy. I's got religion. Yes, sir, i has got religion. And so the usher looked at the woman in shock and told her, Well, Why don't you know that this isn't the place to get religion? And as a result of that, um, they asked her out of the church. And that joke he told quite often. But that's the case. There were many of those elite churches. Uh, You couldn't bring tambourines. You couldn't bring instruments. And all of that would come later. And the churches that did use those instruments, drums, trumpet, guitars, and all of that, even up to this very day, uh, was a lot separate from those elite uh, kind of churches, such as the Episcopalian and and the others. So um, this is kind of a way that some of that division happened. And I'm just giving you that structure of the black church at that time. And these are the resources that support that. Now, one of the greatest uh, researchers on the history of the black church was a man by the name of W.B. Du Bois. He was one of the first ones to attempt to really survey the church in the lives of African-Americans. Du Bois wrote a book called The Negro Church, and he published it in 1903, and it grew out of a proceeding that he had held, and others had held, at Atlanta University Conference. There was a big conference that they held at Atlanta University, which is Clark Atlanta um, and the Morehouse-Spellman campuses, uh, for the study of the Negro Problems. But they never received the attention. The book that the Negro Church book didn't get the attention that the Souls of Black Folk got. Where he also deals with the spirituality in there. Uh, that was published also in the same year. Now, according to many of the sociologists who were writing around that time, Du Bois's The Negro Church was a pioneering study. It was the first book-length sociological study of religion ever published in the United States. It was the first in-depth analysis of black religious life. And it was the first sociological, historical, and empirical study of black religious life to be undertaken by African people themselves. So Du Bois published the first scholarly study of the Black church. Following him was Carter Woodson. Carter Woodson published a book in 1921 called The History of the Negro Church. It was a much more readable narrative. It was a little bit easier reading, although a lot of the writers, people like Daniel Alexander Payne, uh, back in 1891, had written histories of their own denominations. Woodson wanted to evaluate and access the accomplishments of all the groups and show their evolution. Woodson was very interested in looking at institution building. And actually, when you look and study the black church, you are looking at the study and the history of building institutions for African people uh, in this uh, American world. Uh, His work was to be revised and reissued several times, a very powerful study. Another widely read survey of the black church was produced several decades later by the sociologist E. Franklin Frazier as you know, E. Franklin Frazier is the one that wrote the work called The Black Bourgeois. Uh, in 1964, Frazier wrote a book called The Negro Church in America, in which he referenced Carter Woodson's work several times. But here's the problem between Woodson and Frazier. Frazier wanted to say that he was arguing that under any case, um, black people had not retained any of their Africanism when they came to America, that they lost it. And they did not use their Africanism at all. Now obviously a lot of people disagreed with him. E. Franklin Frazier was picking up that from white historians who were saying that slavery was so detrimental that black people lost the ability uh, of understanding their history, their spirituality, and their culture, and they lost it. And uh, obviously Woodson was saying that that was not true and he went on to write and explain that. Uh, many scholars, as I said, disagreed with Frazier totally. And they argued for that there was a continued presence of African cultural retentions. And we know that, because we, we know that from today. And this retention in black life, including the aspects of the religion. And you even had white historians that were saying that you know the Africans did tame their culture when they came to America. People like Melville Herkowitz, who wrote a book called The Myth of the Negro Past. And then uh, Dr. Dr. Lorenzo Turner, which was a very good book called Africanisms in the Gullah Dialect. And that's really rich African culture. Those Rice Islands out of South Carolina and up in that Gullah community, all of that is seriously the retention of African culture. And so Lorenzo Green, uh, I'm sorry, Lorenzo Turner did um, research in that area and he was able to show and he wrote that book in 1949 and then a white european a white host um, historian by the name of peter wood wrote a book called black majority and that was about south carolina and he talked about cuz at one time there were more blacks in south carolina than there were whites and he talked about the role that they played and then one of one of my favorite books is one by john blassingame wrote a book called The Slave Community, Plantation Life in American Culture. And he clearly points out, he's the one that pointed out that when the Africans came, uh, they were allowed on Sunday to go down to Congo Square uh, in New Orleans and practice their religion. And they would continue the process of using the Vadun and other systems that they brought with them from Africa. So uh, unlike Du Bois, Woodson, Frazier, and all of them, uh, there have been a lot of studies that have been done on the black church. And these studies were done to let you know, first of all, they're very African in nature. They retained a lot of their Africanism uh, when they came here. Even in in the theology of Christianity, Christianity is not a white man's religion. The white men took it and used it for themselves and created rules and laws uh, to be able to operate that system because the Catholic Church didn't practice Christianity uh, the first form of Euro- Euro- European theology is the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church did not practice Christianity that was picked up by uh, the splinter groups that broke, were breaking away from the church and, and to do that uh, and as you know the Catholic Church Demanded that you worship things their way or they kill you uh, okay. j- just that simple. and so you were able to uh, to understand that you know by the fact that you know they, they say, and they still don't practice Christianity you know, in a way. Uh, the Bible the Catholic Bible is not the same Bible that the Protestants use. Uh, That's a whole other different ballgame. But that's another history that we would have to kind of talk about. So I want to move on through this because I want to basically um, give you a chance uh, to kind of open up and tell us, you know, what your experience and those of the clergy who I asked to join me. One of the things that the black church served is that it became a theater, as one writer said. It was a theater. It was a forum. It was a social center it was a general gathering place for the black community. And simultaneously, it provided charity to the needs, provided enriching music, developed community and political political leaders, and served as the location of some early black schools. Uh, Since the black ministers provided for many needs of the masses, they became the social political leaders in the black community. When the when the um, Congressional Black Caucus uh, first organized, every member, except for Shirley Chisholm, of the of the Congressional Black Caucus was a preacher. They all were pastors: Adam Clayton Powell, Bill Gray, Param Mitchell, and on and on—all black preachers. And it's because of the role that they played and being able to push agendas and make things happen. Uh, So it it was a very powerful institution. One of the best places to do a study of that and to understand that uh, is looking at the state of Florida. Florida was more progressive in doing that than anything. Uh, There was a historian whose name was Cantor Brown. He wrote a book called Florida's Black Political Officials from 1867 and 1924. And he talks about all of the different black elected officials that were operating in the state of Florida. You know, it's amazing. When I did read that and saw some of the positions that these brothers and sisters held, it was unbelievable. There was a Florida Secretary of State. um, There was a Florida State Superintendent of Education. um, A whole bunch of this. And there was a reason for that. Because Florida... Uh, Had um, a a very strong, rustic African community. You know, a a lot of Florida is like Africa. A lot for a lot of Florida is like Africa in a lot of ways. It has that. uh, It has that rustic uh, lifestyle. Uh, If you've ever read some of the work of Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, and what she's written, a lot about that connection of African life. Uh, and it has that tropical uh, sense to it. It also means that they were able to operate because whites didn't want to live in that heat. And so they were able to operate in Florida. Even the, the Harlem Renaissance writer Jean Tuma wrote a lot about life in Florida. But anyway, the Florida system had uh, large population of political people. And these weren't no people that were pitty stuff. They were revolutionary. They were black nationalists. You've got some black preachers that were of Malcolm's long before Malcolm was ever born. And they were just as strong and revolutionary uh, and would tell you stuff just like Malcolm X did. And one of them is one of my favorite heroes. And his life story was written by a historian by the name of Stephen and Jail. Stephen and Jail. Brothers and sisters, i got to ask you again. Please uh, mute your phones. Please do that. (laughs) Okay. So... Yeah, it's one of he he was definitely one of my heroes. So Stephen Angel wrote a biography of a man by the name of Bishop Henry McNeil Turner. Uh and the name of the book was Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, uh an African American religion in the South. Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, an African religion yeah, in the South. Now we know that Bishop uh, Turner uh, was, a, was an awesome brother. Um, he was able to uh, um, yield a lot of power during those times. Uh, and he, he did so. And uh, he, he lived in Georgia. He organized the first Republican Party in Georgia. Black folks, he, uh, he had the first black Um, Republican um, convention that he held in Georgia. And that convention was um, very powerful. They organized and provided local leadership in getting people involved in local leadership, trying to kill the Jim Crow laws, uh, working to make sure that jobs were available for African Americans. Uh, Really, really a lot of work. Bishop Henry McNeil Turner and he was the bishop of the AME church. Now they, they stayed on him all the time about him, you know, uh, stick to what you're supposed to do. He said, this is what I'm supposed to do. Um, I'm supposed to help my people. And as a result of that, uh, he did. And he was a, a, a tireless fighter of change. And then one day he took a bold step and stood up in a meeting and told the congregation God is black now he did this in the 1800's and that sound sounded all over Georgia he did this in the state of Georgia one of the most racist hostile states of the times now if that ain't a Malcolm I don't know anything else that is and uh, this is the AME Bishop of the church in Georgia this is a Around that time. So, one of the best histories of him was written by um, uh, Carter Woodson's uh, good friend and colleague, uh, Brother Charles Harris Wesley. He wrote a significant work on not only Richard Allen, but a lot on uh, the work of uh, Bishop Henry McNeil Turner. Um, And so A lot of them focused on that A.M.E. church. That A.M.E. church was extremely uh, aggressive, and they used the Old Testament scripture and others uh, to fight for change uh, and to uplift the black community in whatever way they could do. So it's an interesting, uh, you know, history when you look at that. Now, what I want to do is I'm going to kind of skip forward a little bit because I, I want, like I said, I don't want to use up because I want to give you an opportunity to do that. So the black church, as we see, played many roles. I mean, it did its Sunday thing, but it did it all week long. It fed lots of people. Uh, it paid people's rents to help to keep them from getting evicted. Uh, and this is across the board. This is not just in one area. And how we know this as historians, that they have been writers who wrote about their specific churches in their specific areas because they were doing things like that. And they created buffer groups to help them. They created groups that would protect them as they were doing this kind of work. And they were a part of the system. And it was that groups, it was, it was those groups that obviously made it easier. Now, um, Christianity also wasn't the only religion that was a part of this, this work. It was just one of them. Because you know we we're quick to jump Christianity, but it wasn't the only one that was around. There are other churches that were around that weren't Christian, and uh, one of these uh, religious uh, systems was called the Nation of Islam, and it was founded by Elijah Muhammad, uh, and it was you known as, it was popularized by Malcolm X, and he, Muhammad wrote a book called "Message to the Black Man" in the He wrote that in 1965, and it was widely read. Uh, and talked about it. The one historian that did the greatest amount of work that helped us uh, understand and know the history of Elijah Muhammad's beginning and the Nation of Islam beginning was a scholar out of Duke University by the name of C. Eric Lincoln. And uh, Dr. Lincoln wrote a book called The Black Muslims in America. And it first appeared in 1961. And it was the scholar, James, the theologian James Cohn, who recognized it as being the definitive text on black Muslims in America. They called it the definitive study. And since then, there has been different groups that have written about it, Uh, but none as strong as what C. Eric Lincoln did. There was one other writer. His name was Carl Evans, E-V-A-N-Z-Z. He wrote a critical critique of the nation. Uh, It was thought-provoking, however, biography, but it did not uh, embrace Uh, The power that Elijah Muhammad had uh, coming out of, again, out of Georgia. He was from Georgia. And it was talked about the rise and the fall of Elijah Muhammad. Uh, And others have done studies. uh, uh, Martha Lee did one called the Nation of Islam, an American millenarian movement. Uh, I personally didn't like that one, but it was still her point of view. And uh, she did write that. Uh, she states that at the core, members believe that the white world and the suppressive political institution would fall. I agree with that. <laughs> but from their ashes would rise the black millennium. Now, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't agree with that. <clears throat> Scholars have, have not a focused a lot on the African American Muslims. And one of the people that has been often overlooked. Was uh, Noble Drew Ali, uh, who started the American Moorish Temple, that that has been overlooked, that needs to be looked at, because it is my position, it is him that paved the way for the coming of the of the great Marcus Messiah Gave, and Pers. Uh, so these independent churches, there. See, that's what you have to understand. The Black Church in America was an independent institution. Uh, And they were at the key. And and joining them uh, were independent fraternal organizations. And obviously the very first of these was the Prince Hall Masons, which was founded in Boston in 1787. That was deeply connected to the black church. Prince Hall was a minister and a businessman. And he started this organization as a support system for him in Boston as he was trying to pull together independent education uh, for that community. We've talked about him before here on the Black Reality Think Tank. And by 1815, uh, the other grand lodges of the Prince Hall Masons were organized in Boston and elsewhere. And following the establishment of Prince Hall Masonry, there were other groups that started popping up, other male groups appearing to appear. One was called the Oddfellows. Another was called the Knights of Pythias, the Knights of Tabor, the Ancient Sons of Israel, the United Grand Order of the True Reformers, and the Improved, Benevolent and Protective Order of the Elks of the world, commonly known as the Elks. Uh, And then the first female major groups was the Order of the Eastern Star and the Sisters of Calante. Uh, And these were groups that also formulated. And if you go back in and you look at the writings of these groups, these were all independent groups who were in support with the black church that were building, they were taking care of people, they were burying families that didn't have the money when people died to bury themselves, they were providing insurance policies to pay for people that had to go to the hospital, Uh, education, donations. All of these were a part of the system of early, late 19th century, 20th century, uh, say right on up until the 50s uh, and the 60s. And a lot of people have written about them, and you, can, and you can read them. There's a book by George Williamson Crawford. He wrote a book called In Prince Hall and His Followers. And this was being a monograph on the legitimacy of Negro masonry. And then uh, there was a book by Joseph Walker. This is one that I like, a very good book. It's called Black Square Compass. 200 years of Prince Hall Masonry, and a lot of these are written different, but one of the strongest ones that was done, again, Carter G. Woodson, Uh, it was done by Charles Wesley, and he wrote uh, about the Prince Hall Masonry, but he did a, it's really, people have critiqued it as a very soft uh, writing, you know, he had to be careful, he said it, didn't say a whole lot, (laughs) he just said a few things. But then there's another book that's also important. And we had uh, one, of, one of our panel members here on the Black Reality Think Tank used to talk about Carter Woodson, talked about him and his role as a coal miner and being a coal miner. Well, there was a reason that he had a lot to do with coal mining. And this book brings out what that reason was. Um, there was a book that was written by Joe William Trotter, And he has a chapter in that book called True Reformers in Coal, Class, and Color, Blacks in Southern West Virginia. And he, this was written, it covered, the book covered the period of 1915 to 1932. But there was something that the true reformer group was doing uh, in terms of why they worked those coal mines of West Virginia. And so this Black fraternal life was very important. And as a result of that, it began to fold over into those blacks that were going to college. They started organizations. Again, they started them basically back then as support groups. Most of them are going to these white universities. Uh, They didn't have any support. Uh, They didn't have anybody that they could study with. They didn't have anybody that could help them from years ago pass exams that were written by certain professors. Who had obviously kept those? That's important when you're in higher level education. And so, one of the first fraternities that started was in Philadelphia in 1904, called Sigma Pi Phi. Sigma Pi Phi, and that fraternity became known as the Boule. Uh, and that that fraternity it was very exclusive. Uh, everybody couldn't join. Uh, it was all basically those elite. Uh, those whose parents were doctors and lawyers and blah, blah, blah. And so they were the ones that were part of that boule That's folded over to today. Uh, it's still not quite as strong today as it was back then uh, because a lot of people have joined the ranks of the college educated and they came from families that weren't necessarily of that aristocratic class. But this whole black bourgeois thing comes out of attempt to try to create private groups uh, so that you can develop. Charles Wesley, again, George Washington Carver, uh, Charles Charles Wesley wrote a book called The History of Alpha Phi Alpha, which is a development in college life. And he goes into detail about how all of that works. And he calls out a bunch of names and he looks at some of the things that were involved. And then they they eventually had a group, they used to call them the Divine Nine. And the Divine Nine was basically a study of the most notable African-American college fraternities and sororities. The book was written by a journalist named Lawrence Ross, The Divine Nine. uh, It was uh, published in 2000. And uh, they talked about some of who they were. Uh, And a lot of these organizations had people like the Du Bois, Carter Woodson, A. Philip Randolph, Mary Church Terrell, Mary McLeod-Bathunes, O'Neill Hurston, others that were part of that. And they'd help them weave through Jim Crow. And they were able to use these at Howard and Atlanta University and Fisk and Tuskegee and uh, all of these, and even to some of the land-grant colleges that would come up. And then Paula Giddings would write a book called In Search of Sisterhood the Delta Sigma Theta and the challenge of the black sorority movement talking about women and looking at what they were doing and she would cover people like Dorothy Height
4: mm-hmm. uh,
0: and others so uh, in closing these uh, institutions, these dependent institutions like these fraternities, the black church this, the, the major power of that is that they were independent, nobody could get up in there uh, and know what you were doing. They were able to op- operate privately. They were able to make money privately. Um, and they were able to create other institutions that would also be able to support what they're doing. Of course, in some cases now, we see that they have fallen. Uh, they're not doing that a lot of them anymore. And I think James Cohn explains it the best. He said they lost the vision he said they started putting more focus on building big buildings and owning property that's two and three miles long. Uh, and, and even back in the early years, people like Father Divine, and, uh, Sweet Daddy Grace, uh, those real spiritual, mystical kind of religions, they were doing that, but at the same time they were feeding people too, and they were making a difference. The study requires that type of depth. I think that we can really, if you wanted to as a group, we can look at that and you can begin to really get an understanding of how that can be repeated. Uh, the system is not that old that we cannot cannot be used again. It just has to be used in the, with people whose mind uh, is focused like a father divine. You can still make the money and have the power but at the same time, you feed the people and build the institutions that's necessary. We need, them to, we need the black church to come back to build schools. They've got to build more schools. And I don't mean taking advantage of, of choice and charter. They need to come back and build independent black schools. Uh, there was a black preacher out of Brooklyn, New York. His name was Garner Taylor. And Dr. Taylor built one of the best schools in America. All independent black, no government grants. We had a program that we had on not too long ago with another organization out of New York that built a private school. We need that. We need them to come together, do what they do best, pull together some kind of benevolent offering. So every Sunday, every member put a dollar in the plate to fund the building of a new school. It's not that's hard to do. And uh, and that's where I think some of the work uh, can be done uh, and sort of resurrect. That's where I think the black church will lose its grave clothes. It will lose that, and we we really think that. But again, like I said, we can't we can't uh, get all deep in it. It's not enough time for us to do that here now. Uh, but at least we can touch the surface. And I would love to be able to see what some of you think about how that's being done. So I had asked uh, a couple of folk uh, to come on who are in clergy uh, to do that and to kind of give us a, uh, a thought. I have a, one sister, uh, Sister Benita, are you there? I'm here. Uh, sister Benita is out of Virginia. Uh, it is one of the borderline bo- uh, Bible Belt states. <laughs> but um, Sister Benita, what what do you see? Uh, you're getting ready to, to to get further into your uh, theological career. What do you see the work ahead for yourself in terms of what you've got to do in resurrecting the black church? Well, you know, in tradition
5: with black church, uh, as a matriarch in training, as, as a seminarian, I have to say that God had already spoke in my spirit and I had wrote a paragraph about two years ago about this very same subject. Mm-hmm. So I just want to start how we would say in, in the black church when we say, now hey, I'm getting ready to say something. And maybe the, the mother of the church would go,
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> Get that old home, huh?
5: <laughs> Yeah. But it says the rise and the fall of the black church a religious movement that was unable to reinvent itself. The black church is the black community and the black community is the black church. Mm -hmm. Could the condition of the black community be a reflection of the condition of the black church? Are we ready to consider that our strongest and dearest institution could be in trouble in responding to the issues of the black community because the infected is trying to cure the infection. Mm -hmm. The faith in God that sustained the black community during slavery, has it been watered down by the oppressed becoming the oppressor? Has internalized oppression, the lack of self-love and lack of compassion for one another Resulting in black on black crime shamed our shame. So we go into a denial and perpetuate a deadly silence because our dirty laundry has been aired for all to see. Those old survival skills just don't talk about it. And there was a quote that I read that said, the black church contains in full the kindness, the cruelty, the fierce intelligence and the shocking ignorance the struggles and successes the love and yes the bitterness and bias that make up the black experience in america unquote now the black church response to offenses of discrimination and violence rooted in sexism domestic violence incest and the so-called disgust we have for our homosexual brothers and sisters who lack justice and mercy in the black church exposes the present spiritual condition of the black church. Where does the African-American who is abused sexually, beaten, the homosexual, the homeless, and the mentally ill go to receive justice, mercy, and advocacy if they can't go to the black church for refuge? Is not the black church the pulse of the consciousness of the black community? The church has always been the beacon of hope of the black community. But hope that is denied produces hopelessness. How effective can the black church be when it refuses to give justice and mercy in its own house to the vulnerable and the marginalized be in convincing America of her own injustices to the black community. Expect restitution and help. And I'll end with this. Is the legacy of the black church going to be an institution that has lost its way and become a nostalgic symbol of yesterday's glory, strength, and honor, or will she rise from the dead and resurrect the black community in all her glory,
0: strength, and honor okay. and that's my comment all right that's a that's the powerful question that you put on the table let me go to uh, Reverend uh, Michael Rogers are you there Reverend Rogers are you there good evening Dr. Rogers uh, good, good evening how are you how are you I'm doing well how are you tonight great great okay um, what is your take on the resurrecting and the fall and the death of the black church. Where, where do you stand on that as an as a acting uh, pastor and one that has already, has a flock that you're trying to resurrect as well? Where, where do you see that? How do you see that?
6: Well, exactly because of all the things that you just spoke about, Dr. Rogers, all of the things that the black church was, all the things that the black church represented over the years, there was an attack on the black church. A lot of folks don't get that. Just like other great institutions that black people had in the black family, black colleges, there was an attack on the black church. So we're going to have to see the black church differently now than we did before. It's still, it's still possible that the black church can come back to that. But the black church has been decimated. It was done on purpose. It was done by our enemy and it was done by ourselves. And so there has to be a rebuilding
0: process to get that back in order. Thanks. And what and that rebuilding process starts with who? Does it start with the church, the community coming together with the church? How does it just just clear that up for us a little bit? Well
6: one of the things that I think that would happen is that our people have to be more intellectual. They have to read more. They have to understand more. Uh, there was a, if you, I remember uh, a few years ago when my daughter was in high school, this was back in the 90s, uh, there was this thing going around that if you, uh, if you were smart, you were acting white. Uh, if you read books, you were acting white. If you did your homework, you were acting white. If you spoke good English, you were acting white. And then over a period of time, particularly during those early 90s when rap music came out, those people were in their teens Then these are people who are 40, 50 now. Mm -hmm. When that came in, that was a dumbing down process of black America. Mm -hmm. And our people have to first be educated to read so that they can read. The vast majority of our young people have not even graduated high school. How can we instill in them the concept of churching coming together to make uh, important strides in, in racial equality. How can we instill in them the black church coming together and talking about um, uh, doing for self, revolutionized or black theology? How can we do that when the majority of our, our people don't even know what that means? Mm-hmm. So the first thing we have to do is educate our people first. And then perhaps as we educate them, we can introduce them, the things that they need to know, uh, uh, along with the biblical information.
0: Excellent, excellent. Now, uh, in, in, in educating uh, people to do that, I guess you start first of all with your with your congregation, correct? Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, and you start with them, and um, and, and, how, and how how does that look uh, as a, pr- a process of doing? What does that look like if you're starting with your congregation? Well. Well, because you're dealing with older people, you have to interject that
6: in your lessons and in your sermons. And you have to give out as many handouts as possible. Some people will read them. Some people will not. Some people see words on a page and they just throw it away because our people have not been taught to absorb information. The masses, particularly the older ones, that we have to work more so with the younger ones and teach them as they come along to read all those books that you talked about, all those names that you talked about. There's kids here who never heard those names. they never heard of those books. And so how can we, as a people, in a church, or anywhere, educate our people to a the level if they don't read, if they don't understand, they don't understand the history, the uh-huh. importance of the black church and things like that. So uh, it, 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 it starts, in, in my case, with using as much information as I can possibly give them, in lesson, and in teaching, uh, as I possibly can. That's why it starts with me, with me in the congregation.
0: Gotcha. Okay, and I I, I think I, I understand that. You know, you're right. There has been uh, a loss of uh, intellectualizing, and not and that it's not not a sophisticated way, but just in terms of reading, uh, there used to be methods. Uh, back in the old days that they used to use, they used to have what's called BTU. Uh, they used to have uh, places where we learn other than uh, just about life, you know, and young people would come together. Very few young people are in the churches today. Am I correct right. in saying that?
6: That's th- right. That's right. And, and that's not their fault. It's the church's fault because the churches did not spend the money on youth ministry. Now, I'm not saying that with every church because obviously there are a lot of churches out here that have large youth ministries. Uh, and some of the things that you talked about, those things are happening in different places, but they are so few and far between, it's, a, it's
0: as if they don't exist. Right. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Reverend Rogers. I'm going to come back to you. Hold on now. Don't go anywhere, okay? I'll be back. Uh, let me go over. T- I want to get. I want to first get the clergy, and then I'm going to open up uh, to our lay community to talk. Uh, I see we have uh, Reverend Briscoe, uh, Willie Briscoe, online.
7: Yes, you do, sir.
0: Yes, thank (laughs) you. Reverend Briscoe, how do you see this problem? Um, Or is it a problem uh, for you as it relates to the black church and and its strength uh, that it had in the 50s, in the 40s, uh, today? How do you see that?
7: Well, I'm in social justice work, and I'm in uh, relatively the current protest or whatever. So I am attached to what you might call current events. What I see as in the old days, you never heard words of a dying church or you never heard words of a struggling church. And I think we forget who the church is The church is Jesus Christ, so it cannot fail. It will not fail. So, we will have have waxing and waning in membership, and we will have waxing and waning in purpose. But overall, we will not fail. So we have to to attach the perspective that both of the the other speakers have said. We have to embrace. All people, are, all people, mm-hmm. no matter who they are, what background, where they come from, because our religion is love, and our church is about love. So we have to to to, to get back to to that as being our primary focus, and then education. Mm-hmm. We have to we have to educate the church. I agree with that. We have to educate the community Mm -hmm. and we have to let everybody know that whether you are on the rolls of a church or not you are still serving the purpose of a church wherever you are in the community so we're going to have to somehow take the church from behind these walls and reach out in the community and let people know what church really means and, and, and what what Christ really intended it to mean, as far as all of them being a part of this and all of them being a function of the church, Mm -hmm. because our community sometimes feel left behind by the church or disregarded. So we are going to have to take the church from behind these walls, reach out into the neighborhood in the community and show them that that there's no difference between us and them. We're inviting them to, to join. Our struggle is their struggle. Mm-hmm. And our success is their success. And, and that's one of the main things that we've got to do because young people are not walking in the doors of the church, coming down to the podium and giving their life to Christ.
1: Mm-hmm.
7: They need to see Christ in us. And they, they need to see us on the battle lines with them, and they need to see that we care, and they need to see that we are not looking down on them. Right. So I know how to say a lot, but I, but what I'm saying is the church has to become functional and, and Christ has to become visible in us and in our communities, or else we are not going to be successful in doing this. But the church will not fail. Right. The church can not fail, and so we need to we, we need to speak it up, like we're on the winning team, and there is no failure in us. Right, right.
0: Oh, I definitely, definitely appreciate that. Yes, go right
5: ahead, Tiffany. Um, I, I want to kind of uh, put in there, kind of from a female's perspective, what I feel one of the challenges are with the black church today. The black church is basically ran particularly, uh, predominantly by black men. And in our culture, the church is one of the few places that a black man can still be respected. He literally can have a past. He can have indiscretion. But if he becomes a minister in our community, he's given kind of an instant respect. And I believe that the Bible talks about a man that cannot rule his own household can't rule a church. And so we have, in my opinion, a lot of black men in the pulpit who are undisciplined, who um, do not have good best practices on how to deal with uh, female relationships in the church, um, there's a lot of indiscretion with pastors and female uh, relationships in the church um, that are just unbelievable. And we have very well-known black pastors that have very, very, very um, uh, lives that are just kind of reckless in their um, uh, sexual pro- improprieties. Uh, divorces and all of that. And not, and I don't say that to judge, but I'm saying that if we don't deal with the dynamic from the top down and not the bottom up when it comes to the church, then we're always going to have a problem. So the church's response to AIDS was very shaky. Uh, the church's response to the LGBT community is been shaky. The church's uh, attitude toward women um, is shaky, and this is predominantly held in belief systems of of a patriarchy system Mm -hmm. of men who, on one side, I think, want to see the church expand, but it is also a social club and that it's a place where the black man is respected. Where else is the black man respected? He's not respected anywhere else than maybe the church, entertainment, and uh, sports. That's it. So I think that we have to really, uh, there needs to be some really uh, honest, rigorous conversation for black men after the call and how to handle um themselves uh in situations that end up becoming very traumatic and create trajectory uh in the community. And I say this, I don't say this as a spectator. Uh, I am a part of the black church, and so I've talked to a lot of women that have relationships with these pastors that are even if some have gone beyond the sexual but even if it's not sexual it's emotional infidelity um and um the um the righteousness and the accountability um is really need there needs to be some intervention and so that's my opinion what i feel like one of the Okay. The
0: problems and trials. Yeah. Let, let's hear what some of the uh, our, our brothers have to say. Uh, and I just want to let our audience know we're going to forego our top of the hour discussion because I think this is too important. We need to make sure we get all of this out, R- Reverend Briscoe. Since you were on, you, would you like to respond to some of what you said? And then I'll That's come good. to you, Reverend Rogers.
7: I, I I cannot disagree with her in any way, but. What I I have seen in, in Milwaukee and in the, the social justice organization that I have been in, the, the, the pastors and, and, and the, the the ministers that get out and and, and, and mix and mingle and, 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 and get in the community and, and show themselves other than in the pulpit, other than with the collar on, show that they are willing... To fight with the people, those people get just as much respect as they get in the church. Now, I, I understand what what I just heard because power corrupts, and, and a lot of people are are untrained or undisciplined when they they assume these positions, and and I I I cannot deny that that is a lot of that. Okay, but but. There is a, a ton of good men. I, I could reel off a, a name of ministers and, and pastors, bishops in this community, that pull up their sleeves, get out of their pulpits, get into community, and get elbow to elbow with the people. And that is what is gaining respect. And that is what I think that needs to be done in order for the for the people to see the church within
0: us. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, Reverend Rogers, what do you think in response to her comment? Um, I can't disagree with anything that anyone
6: has said. Uh, uh, the reason why that is happening again, as I said before, uh, we are not acknowledging the fact that the black church was, came under attack. And because of that, unscrupulous people were put in position as part of the attack. How did it happen? None of, these, none of these people, none of these leaders that you talked about in the history went through that. How did this happen? How did this happen to the black church? How did unscrupulous people, how did charlatans and pimps and people who used, misused, how did they get into the church? How did that happen? How did we let that happen? Good question. And because of the thing that is in, yeah, we got these problems in the church now. Yeah, there are a lot of people who misuse their position in the church to do things that are, that are, are not right. And they know they're not right. But how did this happen? How did we allow that to happen to the most important institution for our people? That's right. Uh, there has got to be, you have to look at that as well.
7: Amen. Good. Amen.
0: Right on point. Let me go to uh, uh, Dr. Bridges, Bruce Bridges. I know, Dr. Bridges, you, you and you I have had several discussions about the, the black church. Uh, I just think, uh, Dr. Bridges, are you, are you on? Um, at least at one time I thought you were on. And he had been been here the whole time waiting for you to call on me, my brother. Okay, all right. So why don't you go on and tell us a little bit of what you think? Well, I was,
2: um, um, uh, so much that, like you said, too, it's it's, it's a very broad topic, but one thing that the brother who just, well, not Dr. uh, Rogers, but the other brother who just spoke, uh, uh, the minister from, from, uh, uh, Milwaukee, one thing I personally would like to see the black church become again and that is an activist revolutionary church i would like to see that because Mm -hmm. that's what that's what the church really uh emerged out of when you study uh uh, uh, church history and you read the history of the church when you go back to uh, um, uh richard allen and absalom jones the black church came out of a, a, a whole history of struggle and survival and progress for the black race during slavery, and it extended itself out of slavery, and that's what it was. But like Dr. Rod, uh, uh, Dr. Rogers said, Michael Rogers said, something happened. But you have to remember; we must remember that when the black church was held under the brush arbor, as we you and I both taught in church history, when it was held under the the the, 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 the trees out in the backyard, uh, where there was no wooden buildings or no shingles, under the trees, they were talking about planning and plotting and getting off the plantation, and they were struck to become free in this society. But something happened and we think that we became free and then there was a change that took place, but Nat Turner Reverend Nat Turner was a revolutionary right. Nat Turner prayed behind the plow on the plantations when he, when, he, when he had a break and he saw blood falling on the leaves of the tobacco as he was working in the fields of white America, Nat Turner did and and uh, and, and Denmark Beesley of course was a pastor, but he was a revolutionary pastor down at the church in Char- in, in, in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, where Dylan Roof went in to shoot up. That was Denmark Beazer's church, and Denmark Beazer was a revolutionary, and not to mention Gabriel Prosser, when he plotted and planned his rebellion in Virginia. Uh, uh, he, he was a revolutionary, and one thing that they had... Now, Dr. Rogers, uh, Michael Rogers, talked about education. That's fine, but we we have to understand that that education has to be a relevant education. It can't just be how to read and write and how to speak well and that kind of thing. But it must be an education that's relevant. And I think that's why black people, I mean, the black youth, is not in the church today. They don't see any need for it. It's not relevant to them and to our conditions as a people. That's just what I think. And I do know that... Uh, 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 in terms of relevance, Nat Turner, Denmark Beasley, David Walker in Wilmington, North Carolina, who was also a minister, uh, uh, Harry Tubman and Sojourner Truth, the only reference that they had, but they used it to the utmost, which means that with all this information that we have today, we, should, we have more to go on than they did. They had the Bible as a reference. But they took that Bible and looked at the children of Israel and the Pharaoh and looked at the Pharaoh in the Bible as the oppressor in our present day time, and they related to the people. And that's what happened. And it's what has to happen today. and you mentioned uh, uh, fraternities and Siraj, that's another lecture I can get into that, too. Paula Giddings I had here at my store many years ago, also the brother who wrote The Divine Nine. Um, um, and, and, but, but, but one problem, too, and you mentioned it, too, Dr. Rogers, out of the church is where a lot of our bourgeois middle-class type teaching and our uh, uh, thinking came from, and that has to be crushed. Yes, it, 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 we, we, we have to stop thinking that because I go to a Catholic church and you go to a church of God in Christ, that you are better than me because I'm a Catholic, because the Catholics are to be white. We have to understand that the church is a black church of a black tradition. We are the originators of religion, and we have been given false religion, fake religion that has been interpreted to us by white people we don't we don't we 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 we, we, we didn't listen to Dr. Uh, uh, James Cone James Cone that's what liberation theology is what we did. I'm not going to preach I'm going to be quiet because I told several of my former students to tune into the program tonight and hopefully some of them are on the line and uh, some have texted me saying they're waiting to say something but I did want to mention that uh, and, and mention Daddy Grace which is another story and Sweet uh, uh, Father Divine and uh, all these charismatic ministries we could talk about them too uh, uh, but, but that's anyway the church has to be made relevant to the masses of black people and has to become an institution that's going to work for the betterment of us and for our freedom. If not, forget the church. If it's not going to become relevant, leave it alone. Right. Very good. Amen.
7: Thank
0: you, sir. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, uh, let me go over to uh, Brother Lush uh, from Montgomery. Brother Lush, you got a lot of churches in Montgomery. What's what's uh, your take on all of this? Oh,
1: Yeah, I a lot of them. Um,
0: the question, and, and good evening, everyone,
1: is um, the question that I've been kind of pondering on to pose is you have a lot of churches these days, and I'm going to pick one uh, the Unitarian Universalists, you have um, the, the Black Catholics, and you, you have different aspects of different kinds and types of churches that are allowing a certain kind of freedom of expression for black people in their churches right and and so uh is it because of the fact that and and hopefully the panelists can can um address that is it the fact that when you're going into these different other aspects of religiosity and they're saying you know something Um, We have a place for you here, like where the uh, Unitarian Universalists will say, Black Lives Matter. It's okay to be who you are here, right? So whenever you have these other entities doing that, then can we ever really look for a redevelopment
0: or strengthening of the black church as we've come to know it? Okay. Now, yeah, I think I understand your question. So you're saying you're asking about these division groups uh, and their their validity. Is that what you're saying? Is that what you're asking? I'm asking,
1: yeah, there are other groups, other religious groups, and these other religious groups are um, having the opportunity to allow those who are melanated within their ranks oh, okay. to... Uh, express themselves, I, I think about because, you know, it's so interesting um, because I was raised black Catholic, okay? okay and and so you had organizations like the Knights of Peter Claver and, and, and others that kind of run off um, uh, kind of run away from me now and so um, you had the Archdiocese of, of the Catholic Church was saying you know, okay, we, we'll allow you to do your little thing, so to speak alright yeah excuse the vernacular, Um, but you still got to come underneath the auspices of the Catholic religion, right? right? And so some of these, and and also being here in Montgomery where you had St. Jude, that place where everybody came to when they were on that march from Selma to Montgomery, right, and camped out overnight and had, you know, I kind of wonder, what did the Archdiocese uh, think of that? Oh, right, okay, um, okay. and kind of say, no, nah, we we not gonna we not gonna uh, ruffle the feathers here, right?" Okay. So I'm uh, um, uh, hopefully the panelists can can um, uh, entertain though that this kind of type of question, and along lines with when you have like the Unitarian Universalist that has Black Lives Matters built within its structure, right? Mm-hmm. And so you can come to us, and you can be free, and you can express yourself. And you could be politically active, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, kind of turn your direction or attention to them as opposed to the kind of type of direction that the Black Church once had or could
8: have.
0: Good. Well, I, I think when I think about what you said about the Catholic Church, I think of uh, Bishop uh, Stalin's uh, out of uh, D.C., and when he wanted to take uh-huh. the Catholic service and make it more African focused and centered uh-huh. and he used kente cloth and he used African drums uh, and he did all the kind of things and the church came down on him like a ton of bricks uh, but it didn't stop him uh, because of the fact that he wanted to, uh, he, he he argued that his people needed to be inundated from their own culture and uh, he attempted to fight the archdiocese uh, on how that was done. Now. However, he ended up having to leave and go independent uh, to do that, and that's what sometimes happens because, you know, that's very clearly the church, the Catholic church is European religion, and it has always been that way. It was their introduction into all of this system. For hundreds of years, the Catholic church uh, was the only religion that whites were, were forced to use. You could not change it in any way. As I indicated earlier, coming out of the, the Middle Ages all the way into the, the Renaissance, uh, Catholicism was the dominant religion of Europe. And uh, and then obviously that's what the Crusades was about, is to change that. So I think if Africans are going to come into these white mainline religion, they're going to always have problems trying to alter that. You know, uh, because of the fact that... Uh, You know, this is their philosophy of things. This is their ideology of things. And they have policy and rules that they don't want anybody changing uh, just because Mm -hmm. they let you in and you're different than what they are. So that's why we Mm -hmm. have to do our own thing, which is what Bishop Rollins, Stallings, did. I mean, uh, he ended up doing his own system. I don't know where he is now. I'm not sure I haven't heard in a long time. Um, and, And the Presbyterians were the same way. There were a lot of brothers... Who became pastors of Presbyterian church that were very African centered? Uh, a lot of them were practicing traditional African religions, and they took on ministries under the Presbyterians, but they were guarded heavily. And so, in some points, doing that, you lose your ability to do some of the things that I've heard our audience today saying that they wanted to do, because you have to follow now the rules of the game. You know, so if that. Kind of answered your question. If, if any of our panelists want to to, to lodge into that, uh, I think that you need to consider uh, your own independent movement, that's, and that's what we call the Black Church. It was an independent movement. It did not embrace other cultures and religion. It's it's its own thing. It took what it needed to take, and then used it and and fought. That's what Father Divine did. That's what Sweet Daddy Grace did. And a lot of those others, they used it in a way that embraced what they wanted to believe. And uh, as a result of that, they were able to become effective. So um, anybody any, wanted to add on to that? Anybody? Reverend Rogers, you want to get into uh, Yes, I've had some experience with the
5: Unitarian Universalist uh, congregation. And uh, my experience has been that the intellectualism is not so covered up with um, pomp and circumstance like in the black church. All dissertations are not equal. All PhDs are not equal. There is an acceptance uh, if you have the cerebral capacity and you're intelligent. uh, Some are PhDs, they're not intimidated if you don't have a PhD and you're able to have a conversation with them opposed to it's been my experience in in our culture once people become phds we kind of like honor the phd opposed to the critical thinking that is supposed to come with the phd and presenting an evaluative process and challenging and and uh critical thinking and so my experience has been um there is a lot of freedom in those organizations but to your point the culture of of white supremacy is still very much alive. If you're trying to do something that's black centered, but if you if you but if you're wanting a place to have some intellectual uh, stimulation, it, it, it is a very freeing freeing platform. In my experience, as a universal unitarian. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, all right. Let me let me go to some of the folks that uh, may not be in, in clergy, but. Uh, they have been on for quite a while. Let me go over to uh, Brother uh, Willie McIver. Brother McIver, you have a question or comment or point of view that you'd like to stress with us. Brother McIver? I guess you're just listening. Okay, all right. Um, let me go to uh, um, Sister Ayaan. How you doing today? Peace, peace. Um, I'm okay. How are
4: you? Okay, good.
0: Uh,
4: Greetings to everyone. Peace and love. Um, I'm thinking of Dr. Clark and how he said, whatever religion you practice, let it be a tool for your liberation. And I'm also listening as uh, the panelists, the pastors, speak about the importance of education. And what I want to say is that uh, our young people uh, and many others, older ones, who are leaving the the church uh, by the tens of thousands, they're actually getting an education. And education, part of what they're getting is that Christianity is, in fact, a religion that was forced on us. And... um, some of us are making a decision that we don't want to practice something a doctrine, we don't want to use a doctrine that was forced on us because we had and still have a spiritual system that is highly advanced in Africa so if for, for those who want to remain in the church and resurrect the church then uh, Bruce said a, a lot of what I wanted to say and that's that Black liberation theology has to be taught to our people because the church has been, since slavery through now, been used as a tool, uh, it's been weaponized, and it's been used as a tool to enslave the mind, the black mind. When you have, and we've talked about this many times, when you have, you know, those nine people that were shot talking about they're going to forgive a white shooter, You know, when every time there's a shooting, uh, a a murder of black people, um, the church says, forgive them. Turn the other cheek. Pray for your enemy. People are getting tired. People don't want to hear that. They're not trying to hear it. And that is the reality. The last time I called in, I talked about taking a reality check. And I know we love our traditions. I know we love the church. Black church is a beautiful place to go you know, to express our spirituality, to <laughs> practice, you know, whatever. Um, but the reality is
5: that we are
4: being killed off. And if the black church is to to to, to um, resurrect itself, I'll say again, it has to embrace that liberation theology. Uh, Doc, I didn't hear you mention, I don't know if you did, Albert Clee. You know, I think he's mm-hmm. one of no, the first this... people to teach black liberation theology.
0: Is that correct? Well, I don't know if he, he didn't call it black liberation theology, he called it Christian nationalism.
4: Okay. Um, I saw something, uh, or read something at, at That's the, but either way, we have to give our people some type of sense of warriorship, Right. Because I, I want to, uh, I guess, finalize what I want to say with this. Um, a lot of our people are just tired of seeing us getting killed. And we often talk about, you know, with human beings, the primary need is for uh, food, clothing, and shelter to be, to be able to provide for yourself. And we got to add security and protection. You mm-hmm. know, how do we protect ourselves against murderers? Mm-hmm. They've been murdering us for centuries. And, again, people are tired, and the, the church can't get on board with an, uh, producing Denmark VCs and Nat Turners who are going to say, no more, we're not having this, you know, um, then, then I don't know. You have a lot of people che- teaching about dry bones and, you know, uh, you know, different scriptures, but what are we actually doing? Praying for your enemy just doesn't work. And, again, people are being turned off. And I am speaking as someone, not a pastor, but someone who was very, very inches away from becoming a minister. But I just, once I understood that what I was being taught was a Eurocentric doctrine. Mm-hmm. And I love, like, again, I love my experience in the, uh, some of it in the black church. Once I understood that it was Eurocentric and it was the the thought, you know, in the beliefs of of European people that I was being taught, I couldn't do it. My spirit wouldn't let me do it. So Mm -hmm. liberation Mm -hmm. theology or else, I don't know. Okay. All right.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, Brother Alfonso uh, Watkins, from from a uh, psychotherapeutic way, uh, because that's your profession, Uh, how do you see this religious uh, need to... Uh, galvanize and re-resurrect
8: the black church. How do you see that? Uh, peace and blessings, family. It's always a pleasure to be amongst y'all, um, be amongst you, Dr. Rogers, um, your guests. Um, I, I have to go back to my sister that spoke before this sister, and she spoke to the reality of the leadership uh, that is in the present, I'm going to say that's present in the black church. In, in the reality of many of the uh, men and women who are um, in leadership are not equipped to transform the church um, to move it in the de- direction of Black liberation theology or Black Black radicalism. Um, so, so there has to be a real conversation about a uh, institution that is going to equip and prepare those who want to be uh, a pastor um, to, 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 so that they are equipped to provide the necessary services for the individuals that's coming through the doors, um, provide the necessary community networking that's going to be required to address the mental health, um, the um, different types of traumas and um, experiences that our people are experiencing coming through these oppressive conditions. So from a clinical perspective, like I said, I think we have to have a real conversation about those who are um, in the position who call themselves pastors and then creating an institution Uh to help prepare those with a different mindset as it relates, like the sister was that was just explaining, coming out of a white, the European social construct of what, of black religion is, or the black perspective is, or what the black experience is. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. And you're right, because, you know, uh, many times uh, ministers are called on to be councils uh, and to consult with families and individuals about some very intricate things. And I agree, I think they need to be equipped beyond the seminary training uh, in order to do that, you know, and I know that some of them are. Uh, because those who do grief counseling and things like that, they have a special uh, tool and a system that they have to use. And so you're right, and that's that's a very important moment sometimes in the lives of a black family uh, when you're called in to counsel in those ways. Right. People going through divorces, uh, things like that. That's that's critical stuff. So right.
8: And also, I just like to add, Bob. A lot. Um. And I, and, I, and I, I don't want to generalize. But many of the pastors' ego won't allow them to even allow those who are equipped to do that in the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To, 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 um, to be in the pulpit and articulate um, what skill sets, um, what ex- areas of expertise are going to be needed to move the black church into the position where it used to be a social, political, economic engine in the black community. hmm Okay. So, so I think also with the mental, the, the, the clinical piece is the mental health of the um, pastors. To, their ego won't allow that to happen.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. You're right. I agree. Okay. Um, uh, Brother Timothy, you've had um, your experiences in the Nation of Islam. Uh, we have uh, talked earlier about that has been one of the uh, very strong voices of the black church uh, historically. Uh, it wasn't the first, but it was definitely one of the strongest and that uh, under the leadership of your founder and obviously the one that's the disciple today, uh, you still hear that voice of nationalism, that voice of, uh, of, um, of change. What, what is your particular training for that? Uh, well,
5: I'll tell you, sir, that in studying the nation for years, you know, it took me a long time to become a member. Because sometimes th- things I couldn't grasp right away. It took me some time to understand. I read more. I came across people like you and uh, and, and Dr. Rogers and, and the sister that is, and, and the brothers that come on, on, on your program. But um, what I learned about the messenger that was so very, very important is, is that he took some of the black church, if you look at it. He took some of Garveyism, if you look at it. He took, took some of the Noble Drew Ali, if you look at it. And he he put together a movement, and he taught black nationalism in a way and manner that has something to do with diet, has something to do with discipline. He built a military out of it. And with that, he was a person who was a builder of men. He was a man who made men. Like you're talking about race men. He was a man who made race men that we're looking for today and sisterhood get right. a sisterhood so if you look at the messenger and all that he built and what he did a man with a second grade education and a man who had an eighth grade education and they shook the world you have to say that all the elements that he put together to get that movement together is now talked about today and they can't do nothing with it like he said they will never his teachings will ever will always be around and will never destroy it but I want to add this part sir because I am a fraternal member. And I think one of the mistakes as we have progressed in Kappa Alpha Psi is that we have to drop that word Greek because what white folks have studied from us was the Egyptian mystery system and they adopted it. And we came behind them. And I'm telling you, it's like if you look at these people who are fraternal members, like a girl told me, she said, Tim, she said, I went to the AKs one time and I want to do a little radical movement and they didn't want to do anything with me. I said, but guess what? If you was around Rosa Parks' as AK, would you walk with Rosa Parks? Would you walk with Bobby Seals and, and Hillary P. New Hoover Sigmus? So these people talk about this stuff, man, uh, Cecil B. Moore, uh, uh, Du Bois. A lot of them people were in fraternal orders, mm-hmm. So they put down the fraternal orders. It's like Du Bois said, all of us have fallen short. He said the Tiles of the fallen short the violent is falling short but you got good brothers and sisters in these movements and if you look at their past and their history you'll be surprised what they've been through and where they've been and who
4: they are
0: true that's true and i think that has a lot to do with the the original reason that they started and uh, other and then the transformation of the organization uh, through the months and years, they lose some of that. It, it gets lost. That's right. That, exactly. They, you know, they added a paper bag
5: contest. Now, you really? know, but they had the paper bag contest in entertainment. See, yeah. the stuff that we didn't want to drop that we adopted because of our brainwashing. Right. See, we bring, we bring these things in the organization. And what happens, it breaks it apart.
0: That's right. That's exactly right. So um, so very clearly, though, I know that, you know, as I said, your your leadership Uh, Has a strong uh, position. I've heard Minister Prakash many times uh, tell its members about the respect of women. As a a sister asked uh, not too long ago uh, in her system about respect for women, you know, and I heard them, uh, I heard her ask that about how do you do that, and very clearly the nation uh, has uh, has definitely been one to. Not let that happen. So you're right. Thank you so much, to that brother <laughs> Timothy.
5: And that's true. Hold on, I am going to say. And Mister Farrakhan is a member of uh, American Southside. Whether you know or not, he's a Q. Okay. All right. And so is Khalid Muhammad. And so is Khalid Muhammad.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, in the okay. original in the original stages of things, those were important because they were opportunities to get jobs. Uh, they right. They were they were opportunities to to elevate yourself in the business world. Uh, if your brothers were in positions or key positions, that you could obviously use that uh-huh. uh, to get so. So there was some value, uh, I think. Though and it let is, me tell
5: you something: it's still moved devices. All, all my uncles from the South were Masons, and they needed that survive in the thirties in, okay. in the Masonry. Yeah, they yeah. brought that Masonry to Philadelphia. They survived the Masonry in yeah. Philadelphia. They did a whole lot with the Masonry. Some people have against something against it, but it worked for them.
0: Right, you're right. You're right about that. Okay, thank you so much. Let me uh, try to grab a couple of other folks here. Uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, 919-414. Questions or comments? Yes, I have a comment. Can you,
3: First of all, can you
0: hear me? Yes, I can. Yes, I can.
3: Okay, now I'm just going to throw this whole conversation off a little bit. Because in my belief is that the black church has never been
0: out. I'm sorry, your voice is, say that again, your voice is dropping. You lose, The black church never had any power because it came okay.
3: with the overseer. And during the time the Martin Luther King and Malcolm X were marching and doing the things that they were trying to do, you will understand that the churches were owned by the white Bank. Okay, and therefore, any time that you went out to pursue any type of power, the system would come and let you know that they, at any point in time, could take away your church. Taking away your building meant you no longer had a church, um, and you no longer had a body or a mass of massive people to attend the churches,
0: mm-hmm.
3: but. First thing that we have to understand is that the church is not a building. The church is the body, right? Right. And right. then also, as a black man, I don't have time to put my variation on my beliefs in a to a system that is not being directed by a supreme being. Okay. Okay? Each individual here has talked about what man needs to do and how it is we need to change the churches. Right? Each church that you look at, you can go and see a beginning date for it. Right? Mm -hmm. And to me, that's no more than the NBA or the NFL. Because on any given Sunday, we're going to teach from our perspective or point of view of religion. Right, Right. and each one is different. So, when we leave church, we automatically leave church disagreeing with the next man because we have put man in the place of God. Okay, that's all I have to say for this time. All
0: right, Reverend Rogers, you got any comments to that? Uh, really, uh, again,
6: as I said before. Uh, one of the things that we're going to have to do in the black church is to go back to the basics. Uh, we're going to have to uh, instill in our people uh, the reason that they should know certain things. Um, you can't read Marcus Gospel if you can't read. Uh, you can't read about black liberation if you can't read. I'm running into people who are, you know, who are 40 years old, 50 years old, who can't read. Uh, and who don't... You don't have a mind... I'm not saying that they should get a degree or anything like that. I'm just talking about the basic things. And when you have a person who's not knowledgeable about basic things, anything can happen. Right. Anybody can meet Anybody can become a Anybody can become a pastor. Anybody can become a, can become a church leader. I mean, it, you know, it's just one of those things where the door is just wide open uh, for anybody to come in. And that's because of the fact that we as a people have not allowed ourselves to to, to continue to uh, give our people the knowledge that they need to be leaders and to go forth like
0: that. Okay. Okay. All right. Very good. Very good. Okay. We've got about uh, five minutes left. Uh, it goes fast. This is uh, again, a continuing conversation. Uh, this uh, we wanted to break the ice. Uh, we want to come at this again from another perspective and, uh, because the objective is to empower uh, folk to, to go out and do some of the changes and make some of the changes that are possible uh, and to provide some kind of a knowledge base that can build and rebuild some of the things that you have suggested here uh, today. And so we wanted to, like I said, kind of start this off. I'm going to ask the Sister Benita if she would kind of uh, uh, just give some closing words from a clergy perspective uh, to kind of help us to maybe realize what is the next thing that we need to look at? What do we need to look at in terms of the black church to, to really maybe to make a difference as a group? Uh, as I said, this is a think tank, and we come together and we put our ideas and we, uh, we look at those ideas and see what the possibilities are, and maybe some of us individually might use them. Some of us might use them as a group. But in any anyway, nevertheless, what do you think would be our next step here? Um, I, I think our next step is... Um
5: really creating our own kind of uh, internal management system for uh, to be clergy and clergy. I've always had this idea of, of something called after the call. Like now that you're called, what does that look like? And what are some scenarios that you may possibly find yourself in? It would be good for clergy to be able to say, I need to uh, respectively... Uh, remove myself from this particular counseling session with this particular person. So, creating avenues by which there is an accountability system built in that is realistic, compassionate, non-judgmental, but accountable, I think could be one of those solutions that would help us uh, with our leadership. And as a seminarian, I can tell you that uh, what we're learning in seminary. Uh, A lot of times we're told we can't come back and tell the church they're not ready for it. So how do we bridge the, you know, do we leave our people in everlasting ignorance? So I think part of the challenge is uh clergy coming out of seminary, having the courage to talk about what they're learning and give our people an opportunity to make their own informed decisions. So I think that Those are just some
0: of my solutions I would offer. Thank you. Okay, good. That's great. Uh, Next week, we're going to uh, uh, have a young lady that's going to come on. She was the first African-American mayor of a North Carolina uh, city, uh, which was High Point. And uh, she's going to come on, but she's not going to talk about that. She's going to come on and talk about uh, an organization that was built by a black preacher, uh, to work in the community, which is the Opportunities Industrial Centers of America (OIC) under the leadership of Reverend Leon Sullivan uh, out of Philadelphia, and uh, she's going to come on and talk about OIC's role and what that did in the community. And this, which is the kind of thing that we are that we are talking about and looking at, we're trying to understand that institution building. Part that the black church, and the black church was extremely instrumental in building some black institutions. And so, OIC is one that Reverend Sullivan started. You want to hear her talk about what it's doing now uh, and just how it's effective. So, again, I thank all of you for being here with us. Uh, We'll be back again next Tuesday, and uh, we are going to continue to try to make sure that we can elevate, empower, uh, and move folks forward. Thank you so much for your participation. Have a wonderful and productive, safe week. Thank you.